invite you to take your Bibles with me and open them to the New Testament letter of Colossians. Back to Colossians verse 1. I was telling some of you this week, it's hard for me not to preach um, through a book because I feel like I'm just jumping into the middle of a thought. So I am actually glad to be back into this familiar letter. Chapter 1 verse 24 is where we will pick up this morning and do our best to get to verse 29. Really, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5 is all one thought. Uh, we're going to attempt to break it up uh, at the chapter break there. Chapter breaks aren't always great, but this one is uh, pretty decent because Paul changes directions there, although he's sharing the same thought. Verse 24 through 29 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul is explaining to us the truth about real Christian ministry, specifically his own Christian ministry. What does it mean to serve the Lord? What does it mean to engage in ministry on behalf of Christ? I particularly think much should be said about Christian ministry today because I think much uh, is wrong about Christian ministry today. I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding uh, Christian ministry and what it means to actually serve the Lord. And that's not really surprising, because like anything, if we give it enough time, uh, it gets corrupted by human invention and innovation. Uh, that's certainly become true of the church. Uh, we have misplaced our priorities, and oftentimes this leads us down a wrong path in a wrong direction. I would argue from observation and experience that much of Christian ministry today that we see and witness and even are guilty of engaging in has been transformed to be something far removed from what the New Testament actually describes as service to God. The work that the apostles engaged in, the work that the church is called to engage in, the Christian ministry that the New Testament defines and describes is often not what we find the church participating in. As I've thought about this this last week and a few weeks prior, I really think I, I would say two specific things about Christian ministry to help define and clarify it. Number one, I would say Christian ministry as defined by the Scriptures, service to God, is a very narrow and specific kind of calling. It's very narrow. It's very specific. It is not broad. It does not involve a variety or a wide array of details or programs or works. The second thing I would say, equally as important, is that Christian ministry is reserved for every Christian. If you're born again and belong to God, you are called into the service of God. That is not optional. And if anything... We as a generation of Christians have failed in that regard to see ourselves as servants of the Most High God, responsible to exercise Christian ministry in our lives as the main theme of our lives, not as a secondary point or aspect of our lives. If you will permit me, I would like to highlight this second point first. Because I think it lays the foundation for understanding the passage which answers the first point 
what Christian ministry is. Let me first drive home the fact to you that you are commissioned, commanded, called by God to engage in service for God. It's something that we need to have firmly founded within our minds. God has not called us to be idle. God has not called us to be sidelined in our service to Him. And God most certainly has not called us to be consumers only. One of the plagues of our day and time is that everything is geared to us, isn't it? Appealing to us, serving us, offered to us. And that has most certainly crept into our churches and most certainly crept into our perspective of Christian living. What does the church have for me? What does the church offer to me? What does the sermon do for me? What do the songs uh, stir up in me and me and me and me? That is the exact opposite of New Testament Christian servanthood. God has not called us to be idle, brothers and sisters, and He has not called us to be consumers. And He has not called us to stand on the sidelines. God has called us to Christian ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, we find a very familiar, famous verse. Paul is instructing that the saints are the ones to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Which means as people of God, you are to have a role to play, a part to play, and you are to be growing in that part. Being equipped, ever increasingly equipped and enabled to serve God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. There's a wonderful grouping of chapters where Paul's explaining the truth about spiritual gifts. Specifically, chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Your spiritual gifts are given to you for the manifestation of the Spirit. Which means every Christian called by God has a spiritual gift to manifest the Spirit of God in this life through their lives for the glory of God. Which means you have an enormous and even eternal privilege to represent God in this world by the gifts that He has given you. There's nothing about the Christian experience according to the New Testament that is idle. Our faith is an active faith and our God is a commissioning God and He pulls us, as unworthy as we are, He pulls us into His service and He uses us as, as jars of clay Fractured and broken and fragile. We still have the enormous privilege of bringing glory to the creator. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Paul's primarily focusing on the fact that. As a member of the body of Christ you have a part to play. The body of Christ is only as strong as its weakest member is. And every member has a function in that body. You are called to Christian ministry. This idea that only hired church staff or, or set apart church leaders are the only ones who, who can do the ministry, I, I think church and fear, it's, it's not only wrong, but incredibly and seriously dangerous. First, because it only breeds pride in the Christian leader. It leads to power struggles within the church. It often produces burnout. But most notably, when Christians and churches think that only paid individuals do the ministry or the work of the church, it leads to a limited 
spiritual health of the church. Our church will not thrive and the, the representation that we have in Weatherford will not go forth and we will not represent God adequately if we are not all engaging in Christian ministry. We will not be discipled as we ought to be. We will not glorify God as we ought to. We will not worship as we ought to if we're not all actively playing a part in that. We are one body, many members, individually of it, and yet each one having a part to play. God's people need to realize that they are radically transformed by the gospel to serve God in this world. And to do that, we have to often get our minds purged of the idea that we can be idle or consumers or uninvolved and not active. There are many things we ought to grow in church. I often find myself praying before God and confessing to Him that I don't know where to begin to pray for all the needs of each one of us, but... One thing that he often brings to my mind is of all the needs we have, one of the most obvious and serious is that we lack Christian ministry. So this text, it's not an irrelevant text. This text where Paul describes his ministry doesn't have anything to do with you and you ought not be tempted in your mind to think this is only a description of the apostle's life or the pastor's life. The text we find today is a description of every Christian's life. In fact, I've called this uh, the truth about Christian ministry because Paul is talking about ministry, but really we might just as adequately and accurately call it the truth about Christian living. There is no distinction between your service to God and your life as a Christian. And this text isn't just for the apostle back then. It's not just for the pastor today. It is for every Christian who desires to honor and glorify God with their lives, with their bodies, and with the gifting that He's given them. Now, let us begin to consider from the passage what exactly Christian ministry is. We could labor further still try to convince you that you ought to serve God. But let me also attempt this morning to define what service looks like. That's clearly what the passage is about. In verse 23, Paul calls himself a minister. In verse 25, he uses the word again, and he adds the word uh, steward or servant. By the time we get to verse 29, he's referencing struggling or toiling or laboring or working as a minister, these are the sorts of things that we must first begin with. Ministering on behalf of Christ is active and it is work. But what exactly is it? As I said at the beginning, I fear that many of us have mixed or misplaced or confused priorities when we talk about Christian ministry. We could survey any number of churches in our culture and in our time and ask, what is the primary purpose of, of your church existing in its particular locale, its, its community, its location? And we would get into a wide array of answers, wouldn't we? Will our church exist to be attractive? Which is 
further down the line, nothing more than changing the gospel. But our church exists to attract outsiders. Our church exists to be relevant and trendy and hip and innovative. Others would say our church exists for social benevolence. We're simply here to make the world a better place. We're here to care for the poor, to care and look after the orphan and the widow, to pay for people's electric bills and water bills and and so on and so forth, and occasionally give wise counsel. Still others, perhaps even a more predominant group, would say we are here for political activism. To stand for the conservative agenda and reject everybody that disagrees with it. We're here to fight for our views and fight for our values. Furthermore, others would say we're here for polished performances. We're, we're here to gain large crowds and big events. Even still, in the last year alone, church, we've found out that many view Christian ministry as nothing more than an opportunity for ungodly agendas. How many pastors have we read about in the last year in Christian circles who have abused their church for the sake of popularity and fame and influence? And further still, we look up to such people, don't we? They have a great following, a great crowd. They must be successful, irrespective of their lack of Christian character or their lack of representing Jesus. The church is... Unfortunately, confused about what her priority is. In 1925, there was a young man, 25-year-old Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is a Welsh man. He lived in England, lived in Wales. In 1925, he was about to take his first pastorate from the medical field. He was a medical doctor in London. And in 1925, he's feeling called to the ministry, although he hasn't begun his first pastorate yet. And he says something in a lecture in 1925, in February of 1925, that is incredibly applicable for you and I today. He's decrying the state of the Welsh church. And he is lamenting her confusion about her task and her calling. And his desire is to remind her of what is most important. Lloyd-Jones would go on to spend an entire ministry and an entire life convincing people that if the church would only be the church, she would, by virtue of herself, be attractive. She would, by virtue of herself, be appealing. She would, by virtue of herself, reach souls. Lloyd-Jones was an advocate for not dumbing down the Christian faith. In 1925, this is what he has to say about the state of Wales. He cries that there is a tendency to judge a man by his degrees and diplomas rather than by his character. Is it not pathetic that this nation should be found today worshiping at the altar of degrees? That it should have crept into our chapels is still worse. Education in Wales has replaced real Christianity. Now, you and I may plug a number of things into that uh, blank. For Lloyd-Jones, it was education. 
We might look at a man's seminary degree or his achievements in the intellectual academic realm and think that he is a godly man, not caring about his characteristics. You and I might plug anything in there. Again, social benevolence, political involvement, uh, skilled oratory ability. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say about the pulpit in Wales. He says, preaching today has become a profession which is often taken up because of the glut in other professions. I have already referred to the method adopted in the choice of ministers, education over character, and we as the church are reaping what we have sown. It is not at all surprising that many of our chapels are half empty, for it is almost impossible to determine what some of our preachers actually believe. Another great abomination is the advent of the preacher-politician, that moral mule who is so much in evidence these days. The harm done to Welsh public life by these monstrosities is incalculable. Their very appearance in public is a jeer at Christianity. Is it surprising that the things I have already mentioned are so flagrant with all these Judases so much in evidence? We get endless sermons on psychology, but amazingly few on Christianity. Our preachers are afraid to preach on the doctrine of the atonement and on predestination. The great cardinal principles of our belief are scarcely ever mentioned. Indeed, there is even a movement afoot to amend them so as to bring them up to date, as if they needed to be brought up to date. Lloyd-Jones goes on to cry out, if only the church will realize what her true calling is, then so many of the things we seek to correct would be corrected. I agree with Lloyd-Jones. If the believer, the Christian, would take up his or her mantle of Christian service in the name of Christ, many souls would be won for the kingdom. The gospel would go forth in power. If we would not be afraid to be different for the name of Christ. If we would not be afraid to stand up for the glory of God. To speak the truth in love. To lay down our reputations and share the gospel. If we would have our calling crystallized before us. To know exactly what it is that God would expect of us. And if we would engage in it with all diligence and all zeal, I am convinced much of what we lament in our society would be corrected. The things that Lloyd-Jones is complaining about are not only true of the preacher in Wales and not only the true of the preacher today, but they're true of all the people who demand such things from their preachers or expect such things from their preachers or even tolerate such things from their preachers. It is the plague of confused and an unbiblical view of Christian ministries. A mixing of priorities. A failure to realize what our true singular specific calling and task is we have a narrow mission with a very narrow agenda 
And if the enemy can clutter us up with so many things to distract us from that, you better believe he will do it no matter how good they appear. We are the only people in the world, the only institution that has the answer to eternal life. That church is our singular, very specific, very narrow task. All other things can fall by the wayside. Everything else is irrelevant if it doesn't get us to the point of Christian ministry, which is proclaiming the glories of God in Christ through the gospel. Don't let Christian ministry be reduced to to little more than a platform for careers or success or influence. Don't let it be devoid of the things that Paul mentions in this text. Instead, let's identify what Paul has to say and take it up. That's enough by way of reduction, uh, uh, introduction. Let's get to verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I confess this morning I was afraid I wouldn't get through all this text and it looks like I was right. So let me jump ahead a little bit before we come back to verse 24. The very specific calling is in verse 25 and verse 27. The very specific task of the Christian minister of the, the Christian life is to make the word of God fully known. And what is that word of God fully known? It is Verse 27, referenced as a mystery. And what is that mystery? It is the indwelling and salvation of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is what you and I are called and commissioned to do. Every ounce of our energy and effort and resources should be devoted to that singular task. Making known the mystery of God, fully known to the world. It is Christ in you. That's the hope of your glory. Well, verse 24, the person who proclaims that message and engages in that ministry is a person who will suffer. Verse 24, the first mark of Christian ministry we could call joyful sacrifice. Joyful sacrifice. We have grown up in a time where it was actually popular and commendable and respectable to be a Christian minister. Not too many years ago, you could walk into any community. You can still experience this in some smaller communities. And just by virtue of your title as pastor, you garnished respect and notoriety and reverence. That may not be the case even still today in most places, but in virtually every place, identifying yourself as as a Christian is still tolerable 
and acceptable. And I tell you that to say suffering for the sake of Christ is a largely foreign concept to you and I. None of us have suffered for our Christian faith in any substantial sort of way. I can promise you. Not when we compare ourselves to our four brothers and sisters in, in the New Testament. Not when we compare ourselves to the brothers and sisters around the world today. You and I, we may be labeled as bigots or, or narrow-minded or intolerant because of our political views or our, or our associations, and that's fine and, and dandy. We may even be socially ostracized, mocked, disagreed with, rejected, and that's all, all okay. But we have not been suffering to the place of loss of property or freedom or luxuries or even our lives. How many brothers and sisters this year have lost their lives for believing and proclaiming Christ? All that to say, the concept of suffering or sacrifice, it is largely foreign to us. And perhaps that's by God's grace. But maybe still it's because of our lack of devotion to stand up for Christ in the world. We have some haunting texts for us to, to have to wrestle through. Texts that tell us if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Texts from the mouth of Christ and John that tell us the world hates me and if you belong to me, it will hate you. Why hasn't our churches suffered like the scriptures predict? Why haven't we lost life in America for being a Christian? How come the Christian unemployment rate isn't skyrocketing? How come none of us have lost our property? How come none of us have lost our friends and our family? Maybe some of us have, but not on a wide scale. Is it merely by the grace of God, perhaps? Or in a frightening reality, it may be because we are not standing up and doing our due diligence and serving Christ and being devoted to Him. Is there a marked difference among the people of God today in such a way that it brings hostility from the world as the Bible tells us? Do we stand out in Weatherford, Oklahoma in such a way by virtue of our responsibility to serve Christ as His children? Do we stand out in such a way that we bring the, the disrespect of the community around us? I'm not saying we go and seek such things by any means. We have a truth to wrestle with. The scripture has predicted something to be true of Christian living. Why is it not true of us? Christian ministry brings sacrifice. It, it brings suffering. It brings hardship. It brings sacrifice both voluntarily and in a forced sort of way. Voluntarily means we often have to sacrifice things in this life, particularly luxuries, so that we might honor and glorify God. 
There are certain movies you should not be watching and certain TV shows you should not indulge in and certain songs you shouldn't listen and certain places you shouldn't go and certain people you shouldn't be around and certain things you shouldn't do. And we might call those things sacrifice so that we would honor God with our lives. That even our Christian witness might be intact so as not to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. You cannot, as a Christian, go anywhere or do anything or say anything that you so well please. You are under obligation from your king to be and behave and do certain things. That's without question. Those are voluntary sacrifices. I will prevent myself from doing or engaging in such things, this or that, so that I might not bring reproach upon Christ. Then there are forced sacrifices, which the Apostle Paul is experiencing as he writes this letter. He writes in verse 24 from prison. He's never met this church. He's never met these Christians, but he's thrilled by them. And in prison for the gospel, he writes to them. And he admits in verse 24, I'm rejoicing. Even in chains, even in isolation. Even in imprisonment, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. How is his suffering for their sake? If you look into verse 23, he's just exhorted them. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. No matter what persecutions or temptations come up, don't turn from the gospel. No matter what false teaching comes up, don't turn from the gospel. Verse 24, he's telling us, look to my example. The gospel's worth imprisonment. The gospel's worth sacrifice. The gospel is worth suffering. The gospel's worth affliction. So I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm glad that I can stand as an example. I rejoice that there might be some benefit for, for you. From my sacrifice. Paul's experienced a forced sacrifice. That often standing for Christ will bring about. He continues on in verse 24. The latter half of verse 24. And this is likely as far as we're going to get. Because this is the most difficult verse in the entire letter. Indeed it is one of the most difficult verses. In all the Bible. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Paul uses some words here and he uses some structure here that he doesn't use anywhere else. That word filling up is a phrase that is found nowhere else. Paul never uses it. The New Testament and other writers don't use it. It's hard to determine exactly what he means by it. Still, he uses the word affliction in connection to Christ which is also not used by him elsewhere. So we have some major questions, even by the structure. What exactly is Paul saying here? Individuals who are much more learned and much more studied than myself have no idea. They speculate and they take the best probable evidence, but the scholars are all over the place in exactly what Paul is referencing. Even still... All Orthodox Christians agree to what he is not saying. Paul is not saying 
that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross wasn't sufficient. That's important for us to understand because many have taken that verse to say Jesus' death was not enough to save us. They take that verse to say Christ's work must be supplemented or added to, to to procure salvation. And so they invent things. Invent certain kind of punishments, certain kind of works, certain kind of prices all throughout the years. Inventing new things to supplement the work of Christ. Calling on this, calling on that. Well, not only is that wrong, it's foolish to the context. The immediate context, Paul has just been explaining in verses 15 through 23, if you remember, what's he been explaining? That Christ alone is supreme over all things. And that as supreme, Christ alone is sufficient to save. We need nothing else. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is all totally sufficient to reconcile us to God. Still, the rest of the testimony of Scripture says the same things, doesn't it? That our works before God are useless. That only Christ can save and only faith in Christ can save. The best man and the worst man in all of humanity are on equal footing before God because they can do nothing to save themselves. They need a Savior to save them and that is Christ. So regardless of what Paul is saying, we know what he's not saying. He's not saying that Christ isn't good enough to save. The context says that. The very existence of the letter of Colossians says that. He writes this letter to argue against the false teachers who are lessening the Lord. Well, let me give you two views that I think are most probable to what he is actually saying. Although I do so with a little bit of hesitation because so do the, the individuals who espouse these views. Both views are built upon our union to Christ. Let's first identify why does Paul reference Jesus at all in this verse? I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. He talks about something he's doing. He talks about the beneficiary, the body, the universal church, as referenced in verse 18. Why does he mention Christ at all? The two views that I think are most probable say it's by virtue of his unity with Christ. Because the children of God are united to Christ that when they suffer, Christ suffers. When the church is persecuted, our Lord is persecuted. When the church is under threat, our head is under threat. We see this played out in Paul's own conversion from the mouth of the Lord Himself. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, you remember Paul's walking down this Damascus road. He's blinded by the light and sight of the Lord appearing to him. Verse 4, he falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
There Christ clues us in to his view of the church's suffering. Christ is in heaven at that point. Paul is persecuting the church, dragging people to prison, dragging them out of their homes, executing them. Christ appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? There is a reality that when the church of God is persecuted, Christ sees himself as being persecuted. When the church of God suffers, Christ sees himself as suffering. Both views that I would put before you today seem to be founded on that unity with Christ. When I'm afflicted, Christ is afflicted. When the body is afflicted, Christ is afflicted. The first view we might call the eschatological view, the end times view. Flip over in your Bible to Revelation chapter 6. Would like for you to see this very quickly. In Revelation chapter 6, we see some seals being opened. Chapter 6, verse 9. The Lamb of God opens the fifth seal. And John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness that they had borne. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe. And told to rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been this particular view espouses a sort of affliction and suffering from Paul that so identifies with Christ that it's a suffering that has to happen before the kingdom can be ushered in it involves time and numbers In Revelation chapter 6 there, there's a lot going on, but we seem to see a reference to a time of completion and a number of completion. Where the souls under the altar are told to rest a little longer until until the time has come where your full number is completed. Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God at His first coming, but He will usher in the kingdom of God at His second coming, full and finally and completely. But there seems to be an indication in Scripture that that will not happen until certain things happen. One of those certain things being the suffering of the church or the people of God. And perhaps Paul is saying here, I am suffering in the name of Christ for the completion of the kingdom. Secondly, we might call this the, the repercussion view. And this is the one I most likely uh, would, would view. It's the one espoused by John MacArthur uh, most clearly. It's the view that the world hates Jesus, as the scriptures tell us. And so it afflicts on his people the suffering and hatred that it wants to inflict on him. In that regard, we're not... Suffering to fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. We're suffering in regards to Christ's afflictions. 
We suffer in the name of Christ for the sake of Christ because of Christ. The only way for the enemy to afflict our Savior, who is now far out of his reach, is to inflict his people. To cause suffering on the children of God. Let me read to you John chapter 15. Jesus says as much, John chapter 15. Verse 18, Jesus says to the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, you identify with me, associate with me, belong to me. Therefore, the world hates you. Seems to me that we are hated and afflicted in the name of Christ because the world hates Christ Himself. And so the affliction they wish to impose upon our Lord, who is out of their reach, they instead impose upon His people. I think that's why we would have passages like Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul says, It has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer. For the sake of Christ. It's a gift for you. To suffer. In the name of Jesus. We might even put these two views together. The world hates Christ. And so we suffer. And we suffer until. The kingdom comes back. Until the full completion. Comes in. Regardless of what Paul is actually saying here, the truth of the matter still stands. For those who bear the banner of Christ and act in His name as we are all called to do, there is sacrifice and suffering on the horizon. The question is, are you willing to sacrifice for Christ? Are you willing to be devoted enough to suffer for the name of our Lord? Are you willing to have your family reject you and mock you? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to have opportunities removed from you? Are you willing to lose your property? Are you willing to lose your freedoms? Are you willing to lose your vote? Are you willing to lose your life for standing up for Christ? That's the calling of Christian ministry. That's the calling of Christian service. That's the calling of the Christian life, church. We don't appease the world. We don't live in the world harmlessly or comfortably. We're pilgrims here. Aliens. Sojourners. This is not home. This is not normal. This is not comfortable. We're called to something higher, aren't we? And that higher calling might bring the suffering and sacrifice that Paul's bring, talking about. Can we say with him one day, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and for the sake of Christ and for the church of Christ. I rejoice that I'm counted worthy enough. That's what Peter and John said as they left the council in Acts chapter 5 going back to the church. They, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. 
to be ostracized, to be rejected. Our God does not want your comfortable earthly life. He wants something better than that. He wants you to know the joy of belonging to Him even in the midst of hardship and difficulty and persecution and suffering and sacrifice. He wants you to know that He is faithful to see you through. That His peace surpasses all understanding. That He enables you to resist those who hate Him and therefore hate you. He wants you to know the nearness of His presence in the midst of your suffering. He wants you to know what Paul and the other apostles came to find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That even though we despaired of life itself, we found God to be the God of all comfort. The Christian faith is not about you having an easy life here. The Christian faith is about you knowing God. And in God's infinite, glorious, perfect wisdom, He says and has ordained that there's a unique and special way to know Him in the midst of suffering and in the midst of sacrifice. Ways that we would not know Him otherwise. You and I have the great, immense, glorious, eternal, high calling To make known the indwelling salvation of Christ. The hope of glory. Such a calling from such a great God. Makes suffering and sacrifice almost irrelevant for us. The first mark of Christian ministry is joyful sacrifice. Be called to joyful sacrifice church. I have prayed this week and I was up late last night praying as well. That God just might stir our hearts. To be active in the faith for him. Let me say just as frankly and as lovingly as I can as not only your pastor, but one of you. Trinity is my family. But let me say with sincere concern. We should never lack for workers in our ministry. We should never lack for faithfulness to be involved. This should never be a problem that any church faces. And yet it's a church a problem that every church faces. We should never be without servants or lack of volunteers or lack of helpers, or lack of people being involved to stand for Christ. That should never be a concern for our ministries. I'm convinced it is a problem for every church because we have forgotten our specific, singular calling in Christian ministry. is not all these other peripheral things that we involve ourselves in. It is proclaiming Christ by being His servants. Sacrifice voluntarily to be a servant of Christ and be willing to sacrifice by force to have the privilege of being a servant of Christ. I wanted to look at, because it's in this passage, I guess we'll look at it next week, but the reason Paul can do this, the reason Paul's motivated to have a joyful sacrifice, the reason Paul is motivated to Christian ministry, to be distinct in the world around him, is because of the task Of knowing and proclaiming the gospel. He has tasted of Jesus. He has encountered the Lord. He has met with God. 
He has experienced new birth. Such realities don't leave a man unchanged. Such realities radically transform and increasingly sanctify. Perhaps you have never tasted of Christ. You are unconverted. You don't engage in Christian ministry. You're not willing to sacrifice. You've never experienced suffering for Christ. And maybe the reason is because you don't know Christ. As Lloyd-Jones once said, you only believe because you think you ought to believe. You've never tasted of Jesus yourself. I would say to you, come taste Jesus. Come find the Lord and the Savior who changes and transforms your life who calls you into the glorious service of the kingdom and who walks with you every step of the way. What's the answer to your Christian ministry, your service of God? It's by being enthralled with Jesus and treasuring Him more than anything else. For those of us that have been born again by Christ, perhaps today is the day of repentance to say afresh, God, use me as you see fit. My life is your life. Forgive me for neglecting that, forgetting that. And take away all obstacles that get in the way of that. Maybe a renewed commitment to follow Christ, serve God, devote your life to Him in every detail is what you need to do today.